this morning is the importance of having a church that has good, godly leaders. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Just picture this in your mind. Suppose you're building a house. And rather than having an overall coordinator, a contractor, for the building of the house, you just sort of willy-nilly start nailing stuff together and one person thinks it should be two floors, the other person thinks it should only be a basement. One person thinks there should be a set of steps that goes to the front door. The other one wants it to the front window. And you're looking at this house and you're wondering, how in the world are we ever going to get this thing built with so many divergent opinions, so many different ideas? What we need is a good leader. So here's what we want to see this morning. Leaders are indeed important. And we're going to see from the Word of God exactly why. What we need to understand is that churches need godly leaders. They really do. Churches need godly leaders. And one of the reasons that they need godly leaders is to counteract those who would lead the church astray. As we've gone through the first chapters of 1 Timothy, we've seen some serious problems in the church at Ephesus, haven't we? In the first church, or first chapter, excuse me, we saw that there were leaders that were in place who had gone off the reservation. They no longer followed the teaching of the Apostle Paul, and they were sort of coming up with their own ideas about what things should be and how they should operate. And as a result, there was a lot of confusion in the church. The church was thrown into great confusion. So Timothy and the leaders who came alongside him had to address some of those issues. In the second chapter, we saw that there were many people who were coming into worship and the men were arguing with one another and the women were coming in like it was a fashion parade and they wanted to show off the latest fashions in church and that was their motivation. And again, disorder ensued. There was a terrible problem. So here in 1 Timothy, it's natural that after addressing some of these problems and calling Timothy to address them, that the Apostle Paul would want to discuss the importance of having leaders in place to come alongside Timothy so that they could face and address so many of these problems. Leaders are important because they protect the church body. They give the church body direction and correction, and that's vital. The Scripture warned against what would happen in Ephesus. And we saw this earlier, but it bears repeating. Paul warned the elders at Ephesus, keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Sounds like that church needed godly leaders in place. The very church that Paul said this would happen in is the church that Timothy is now pastoring, the church at Ephesus. And Paul's words came true. So God raised up godly leaders to help the church navigate these treacherous waters. But we also need to understand this. In selecting leaders, 
We have to choose leaders who have a proper desire to lead. Look carefully at the first verse with me of chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And look at what the Scripture says. Here is a trustworthy saying. So again, we find this repeated several times in the book of 1 Timothy where Paul will bring out something that had become common knowledge within the church at that juncture. And here's what he says. Here's a trustworthy statement. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, overseer is the term that is used in this passage for the leadership of the church. And it's a term that makes a lot of sense, isn't it? Overseer, guess what it means? It means to watch over or to oversee something, right? That's the job description. That's the function. That is the position of leaders. Leaders are to look at the congregation and beyond what's going on in the congregation in the moment and see the importance of coordinating everything according to God's Word and directing the church body toward the fulfillment of living out the truth of Jesus Christ. Tall order. How does a person move into a leadership position? Well, I believe one of the ways that we do this is by God placing a desire on our heart. Some people might call that a call Other people might call it just a strong desire, but God raises up leaders by, I think, first of all, putting upon their heart the desire to lead, and that's appropriate for us to do that. God wants leaders who lead. And the leadership of the church isn't to be done by warm bodies that are conscripted into service because no one else will do it. And they look and they say, well, my goodness, if nobody else will, then I guess I'll step up. There should be a desire. But here's the thing. We have to have a desire that is put in the right place and toward the right objectives. There are some people who might choose to be a leader because of the prestige or the power that's associated with it. In a previous church, I had a fellow who had been passed over for leadership because the dude was a rageaholic. I mean, you would say something to him and he would go off. So we're looking over the membership for leaders and this brother's name comes up and everybody in the room looks at each other and says, "Uh uh-uh. We do not want a leader that explodes. So he called me one time. He said, Pastor, I want to be an elder. Why can't I be an elder? You know what? I said, because your anger is out of check. Well, he flew off the handle. (laughs) As expected. God wants people to desire to lead for the right reason. And that's to serve God and to serve the church body. And to me, the leaders that I find to be the best leaders are those who don't come in with a sense of entitlement, saying that I should be a church leader because I've gone here for a long amount of time, so it's due me. They're the ones who say, God has placed a desire to lead on my heart. I don't feel worthy to do this, but I will in service to Christ and in service to my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a leader. 
That's the kind of desire that God wants leaders to have. And what we'll see as we go through some of these descriptions is sometimes leaders are called overseers, sometimes they're called elders, but that is the leadership position that Paul discusses with us first in this text. And what he does is, after he discusses the need for these godly leaders, he goes into characteristics of godly leaders. And this is what I want us to go into now. Listen, as a church body, you know what? You can pray for your leaders. Pray that they will be men who fulfill the characteristics that we're going to see listed right here in this text. And secondly, understand this. Don't check out on me because you say, well, I'm not a leader. Don't intend to be. So I'll tune out and count the number of bricks on the wall behind pastor or, you know, color in the little E's and O's, you know, that I find in the bulletin, you know, those voids that need that coloring in. Stay with me, okay? I've just given you some great ideas to occupy your time, right? (laughs) Bad on my part. But understand this. These are marks of Christian maturity. And these apply not only to leaders, but these are things that we should all be striving toward and growing toward as followers of Jesus Christ. So as we go through these characteristics... Let's understand that this is the goal, the mark, that any one of us sitting on a pew this morning should seek to implement. First requirement that's mentioned. Look at the second verse. And it says there, the overseer must be above reproach. Now, I'm thankful for the way the NIV translates this because some of the other versions render this blameless, and the idea is perfection that some people take away from that, and that's not the idea. The idea that's being expressed is no one can hold something against you. And here's the thought. Not that we're perfect. Listen, if a leader had to be perfect, then I will tender my resignation right now. And I think every pastor, well, I don't think, I know, every pastor and every elder across the world would have to do the same thing. There is only one perfect person, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be above reproach? What it means is this. When you look at this person, something doesn't readily come to mind. Use the example of the person I mentioned a little while ago when his name came up for elder. Everybody in the church had had a tongue lashing, a piece of his mind that he could ill afford to lose directed toward them, right? All of them had experienced it. So when his name came up, they said, "Uh uh-uh, that would be disastrous. That's the idea of being above reproach. Being above reproach means that we are in a place to where a charge doesn't readily come to mind. In fact, if someone leveled a charge against you, you would give that leader the benefit of the doubt. You would look and say, no, I I don't believe what you're saying. I'm going to go and talk to that person. You should too. That's the idea. God wants leaders who are above reproach. Look as we go on in the text, though. Really, the above reproach the idea that they don't readily receive an accusation 
is further modified by several descriptions of areas of their life that are above reproach. So let's look at these. First of all, there is the term the husband of one wife. Now, a lot of debate has circulated around this requirement, folks. A lot of people who look at this requirement and they take it in a quantitative way. In other words, he's had only one wife in all of his life. And that's the idea. There was a professor that I had in seminary who was a widower, remarried, and felt that he couldn't serve in a church as a pastor because he was no longer the husband of one wife. Now, I disagreed with that interpretation, but I appreciated him for his integrity because if that's what he was convicted about, he followed through on it. And believe me, he would have been a phenomenal pastor. But here's my issue. When we look at every other attribute, every other characteristic that's in this list, none of them are taken on a quantitative basis. In other words, it's not the number of times that you've done it. As a quality of life, does this describe you? And let's look at some of these. Temperate means that not that you've ever lost your temper, but that you're a pretty level-headed person. Self-control doesn't mean that you've never lost control. My goodness. When my kids were young and we were getting ready for church, I lost it. It was so hard because I would yell at my kids, and then as I walk in the door, well, praise God, it's good to be here this morning. (laughs) And Satan's in the background saying, you hypocrite. (laughs) Tough. No, if we took this on a qualitative basis instead of the quantitative basis, uh, I think we have to look at all of these attributes in that manner, in that way. And I think husband of one wife is even stronger when we look at it in that way. Number one, it means he's not a polygamist. That was an issue in the first century. But number two, it means that the woman that he is married to, he is fully devoted to. You know, you can have somebody who technically remains married, but is not devoted to his spouse. He's flirtatious. He looks at pornography. He perhaps even has some dalliances off on the side. Still married to one woman, but qualitatively, he's not where he needs to be. God wants leaders who are one-woman men. That's the literal translation, a one-woman man. God wants leaders who are qualifying in that way. Look at the next requirement, temperate. Now, while this is often associated with alcoholism and the abstinence from it, really I think it took on a different meaning as it was continuing. The alcoholism is addressed a little bit later. Temperance carries with it the idea of not being rash, not bolting ahead without prudent forethought. This is the type of individual who won't say, ready, shoot, aim. Right? You ever known someone like that? They look at something, this has to be dealt with immediately. Rather than prayerfully taking the time to stop and say, hey, what would God have me do in this? What does this word have to say about it? Everything is a knee-jerk reaction. Listen, when you have a leader in place that doesn't exercise with temperance, 
The church is all over the place. Whatever comes along in the moment is where they go. We need leaders that have wisdom in their temperance. Look at the next requirement. The overseer is also self-controlled. Now, self-controlled means that they have a sensible and balanced judgment. They aren't flighty or double-minded. Have you ever worked on a committee with somebody who says, well, on the one hand, we should do this, but on the other hand, we should do this, and they never can make up their mind? Constantly talking about both sides, and they shoot so far down the middle that you don't have a clue, and they don't have a clue what the decision ought to be. Leaders need to be decision makers. We can't always look at the environment around us, kind of moisten the finger, hold it up to the wind, and say which way the wind's blowing, and that's the direction that we'll go. Leaders need to be people who can make decisions. And a self-controlled person is that rock, that consistency that the church needs as it goes through its rough patches. Every church will hit a rough patch. When you go to a pastor's meeting and they're really honest, they share about the rough patches that they're going through as brothers in Christ. You need that self-controlled person to take the helm of the ship and guide it through those troubled waters. Look at the next one. Respectable. Respectable very simply means that people look up to this person. Not because they consistently tell everyone that they ought to, but because they live the kind of life where people look and they examine it and they say, wow, this person is an example. They're not perfect. I'm not going to put them on a pedestal, but they are consistent. And so we look up to them for their consistency. Look at the next requirement, hospitable. Now, hospitable means more than having people over to your house and hanging out. Hospitable really carries with it not only that, but the idea of a person who is approachable, who's welcoming, who is gracious in their interaction with other people. I've seen some leaders who were good leaders in every other area, but they were completely unapproachable. People were afraid of them. Leadership suffers if we're unapproachable. Hospitality carries with it that idea. Then look at the next requirement, able to teach. Now, able to teach carries with it the idea that a person has knowledge of the Word of God. But sometimes we think that a person who is able to teach is just someone who's learned a lot of highfalutin, fancy theological terms. And so when we talk to them, if they can throw out words that we have no idea what they're talking about, then they must really be godly, and they must really understand the Bible because I'm just thoroughly confused by what they're saying. You know what my idea of able to teach is? After your ministry in a person's life, if you have this ability to teach, you will take those complicated ideas and boil them down to where people understand them and can apply them. That's when a person's able to teach. Not when they can wow people by what they've said, but when they can say something and someone walks away and says, okay, I know what that's talking about now. Yeah, yeah, I think I get it. I think I'd like to live 
this out because it really makes sense. God has spoken to me about this. That is the idea of able to teach. We need people in place who can take the cookies of theological truth and put them on a level where even the kids can get a cookie out of the cookie jar, right? That's something one of my profs told me as we were preaching when I was in seminary in that preaching class, put the cookies on a level where the kids can get a cookie out of the cookie jar. That's what we're to do. That's being able to teach. The next one, drunkenness, carries with it the idea of substance abuse. And listen, when a person has issues with substance abuse and they become publicly intoxicated, and the sin that's often attendant with being publicly intoxicated, that can be a blight on the church. So God is saying in this text, don't put someone in leadership unless they have a handle on that. And then we have the next one. Not violent, but gentle. You know what happens if you have a leader in place that's a bully? It shuts down ministry. There's a whole lot of flesh going on as far as people doing whatever he demands of them. There's not a lot of spiritual growth. God wants leaders in place who aren't bullies but are gentle with the people. I'm not a sheep herder, but I've been told that if you take sheep and you try and drive sheep, they scatter in a hundred different directions. But if you got out in front of them and as you lead lovingly and gently, the sheep follow along. This is what God wants in a leader. Not a violent man, but a gentle man. Not taking Scripture and using it as a weapon to bludgeon people into submission, but using the Scripture as a guide to lead us along God's path. This is what God wants in leadership. And that leads us to the next one, not quarrelsome. Now, this is related to the violence and the gentleness, but what an important attribute. There are some people that just love to argue. They love to say, I am the devil's advocate. Let me let you in on a secret. The devil does not need an advocate. <laughs> he does perfectly fine on his own, expressing his ideas. The person who is quarrelsome, rather than avoiding an argument, goes right into it. And they thrive on it. I've met people in my life that just love to argue. And interacting with them, there's something that could go down just absolutely peaceably. But what do they do? They twist it and ratchet it up and full-blown argument before you even realize it. God wants leaders who are not quarrelsome. In fact, the Word of God tells Timothy this. Don't have anything to do with foolish or stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Now, if any of you have served in church leadership, those last three are really challenging. Being kind to everyone, being able to teach in the moment when you're really frustrated with somebody, and not being resentful. But God wants people in leadership that are put together this way. 
Final requirement in this particular list, those who live above reproach, not a lover of money. Listen, if we're particularly materialistic, that can disqualify us from leadership. Materialistic people tend to be very self-oriented people. Rather than looking at the needs of others, rather than looking and saying, this is how this can be addressed by faith, everything has to be accounted for as far as material things, and they forget the perspective that God is greater than the material. God wants leaders in place who get that. Also, unfortunately, ministry can be a place where the unscrupulous people around it will take advantage of others and take their money. And rather than viewing people as people, they view them as giving units and they lose perspective. God doesn't want that in a leader. Another area. The next three, by the way, just to encourage you, are going to go a lot faster than the first. In addition to having lives that are committed to living above reproach, we want to carefully manage our households well. Look at verse 4. In 3-4, the Scripture says this, He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. One of the requirements of a leader, again, is that they work toward leading in the home. Now, let me be very quick to say this too is qualitative and not quantitative. Okay? Does this mean that the leader will have perfect children? Absolutely not. Listen, when you are in a ministry family, whether it's pastor or elder, your kids are in a fishbowl. And everybody looks at them, and the moment that they do something that is inappropriate, and believe me, they will, everybody turns to this passage and says, you're disqualified. It's a lot of pressure on the pastor or elder, and it's a huge amount of pressure on the kids. I talked to my boys about what it was like to grow up in a pastor's home, and all of them expressed the challenge that they faced in trying to meet people's expectations. It was challenging. It was difficult. God wants leaders in place who lead well. And here's what I've seen. There are some spiritual leaders who think about this text, and they want to make their kids so perfect that they crush their kids so that they can save face and so that everybody will look and say, hey, he manages his home well. When it comes to discipline, there are two things that we want to communicate to our kids. Number one, no, you can't have your way on everything. Important that we communicate that. But number two, you are loved. Kids want to hear both of those things when it comes to raising our kids. I love you, and because I love you, you can't always have your own way. And you know, the tough part about parenthood, whether it's a leader or anyone else, are those constant judgment calls that we have to make, right? Kid comes up, 
throws out something, and you're in decision mode. What's always easiest is to just say, no. I know I was accused of that quite often by my kids. Your first instinct is to say no. You know? We struggle with that. Well, listen, we're to approach leadership in the home just like we would approach leadership in the church. Take time to reflect. Take time to talk over the issue with your spouse. Pray about it. Look to Scripture and come to a good decision. It works in the church. It works in the home. And the leader should model that. Now, there will be some leaders who are struggling to lead in the home, and they'll have that black sheep that always wants to go off in a different direction. Listen, qualitatively, we look at it and we say, while the other kids are following, this one's a rebel. We have to take a qualitative and not quantitative approach. But this is the way we're to approach things. There was a leader in a previous church, not here, who had six kids. And this guy was a toe-the-line, drill sergeant-type parent. His favorite saying, and I can hear him say it even to this day, is, when I say jump, ask how high on the way up. That's the way he ran his home. Six kids. Guess how many of them as adults love and follow the Lord? Goose egg. Zero. He crushed them. There are two extremes. One extreme is to crush them under authority and rule. And one extreme is to just be a laissez-faire leader and let them do whatever they want. Either extreme will ruin a child. God wants to see leaders in place that lead in the church and in their homes in a way that is balanced. And here's the contention. Look at verse 5. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? If we can't handle the smaller responsibility that God has given us, the home, then how do we handle the larger responsibility that God has given us, the church? Next point, next characteristic. They're characterized by spiritual maturity. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this. Again, speaking of the leader, he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Now think about this. You get a person who is new to the faith. They're immature. They've learned a lot of theological words. They've learned where to smatter a praise the Lord or a hallelujah in there. And you take them and you elevate them to a place of leadership within the church. You know what can happen to that individual? (laughs) This Christian thing, man, I got this. I am awesome. I've gone from being a pew sitter to a church leader. Look at me. I'm wonderful. Conceit deadly trap for people who serve in church leadership. It demonstrates terrible, terrible maturity because it demonstrates a terrible immaturity. If you have a church leader who has a pride problem, 
They are difficult to deal with. They will frustrate the entire life of the church. And they're harmful to the church body. But more than that, elevating someone to a leadership position before they're ready harms the individual. You put them in a place to where they become, literally, the word conceited means high-minded. And you're putting them in a place to where they look and they say, I am so much better than the other people around me. I have learned what it is to be spiritual. And I want everyone to understand that I'm head and shoulders above everyone else when it comes to spiritual things. That's harmful. That's hurtful. The Word of God has no place for that in church leadership. Listen to what Paul tells the Corinthians. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but then look at this zinger that he puts at the end. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. When you have a mature, seasoned leader, they understand the balance between knowledge and love, and they will lead accordingly. But if you have an immature believer that's conceited, there are problems. My 35 years of experience as a pastor, I've had some people who are leaders in the church come to me and say, Pastor, and, and these are the words out of their mouths, why can't people be as spiritual as I am? And they're serious. I'm sitting there inside going, what? Dude, get over yourself, you know? But they're asking that question. Why can't people understand God the way I do? Be as close to him as I am. In all humility, I say this. There's a problem. God does not want leaders in place who struggle with this. Why? Because look very carefully at the end of that sixth verse. He may become conceited, and look at this, fall under the same judgment as the devil. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Why did Lucifer become the devil? When we go into the Old Testament, as one pastor told me years ago, and it's kind of stuck with me, his eyes were too close together. Not, not these eyes, by the way, the letter I. I will ascend to heaven. I will take over the throne. This idea of pride and conceit so captured this ruling angel that he sought to usurp God's position. And as a result, he became Satan. Committed to evil. Committed to overthrowing God. Pride moved him to this place. What was Eve's temptation? Not, hey, have a bite of that fruit. It's mighty tasty. But, hey, eat the fruit in the garden. Why? Because you can become like God. God is holding out on you by telling you not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So have a bite. Become like God. What was the appeal? Pride. You can become like God. Pride is something that often we look at and we 
disregard and we'll snicker at it and we'll say, well, they're godly in every other area, but they do have this pride problem. Listen, that's a serious matter. Pride is destructive to the life of the church and to the life of the individual who struggles with it. So God wants us to be careful. Final thought. A consistently good reputation with outsiders. Look with me at the seventh verse. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Now, isn't it interesting on these last two requirements, the devil is mentioned in both the sixth and the seventh verses. And what he talks about is the traps that Satan sets for leaders. Church, let me in, let let you in on something. The devil works extra hard at picking off leaders. And you know why? Pick off a leader and you discourage a lot of Christians. And not only do you discourage Christians, but if it's a moral lapse, it gets out into the community and you've harmed the reputation not only of that leader, but of the entire church body. All of us can readily think of someone who fell in the area of morality who was serving in ministry. God wants leaders who maintain a good reputation with those outside. Now understand this. When it says that you have a good reputation with outsiders, that does not mean that outsiders will all love you. In fact, didn't Jesus tell us the opposite? We can expect persecution We can expect to be hated. But you know, there's a difference between loving and respecting. And as believers, while they may not love us, we can live the kind of life that will cause them to respect us. When I was in college, I worked a construction site. A bunch of rugged Appalachians, I call them hillbillies even, working a construction site, And they'd work hard all week, and on Friday, they would spend almost their whole check going out drinking and to places of ill repute so they could come back on on Monday. They would invite me to go along, and I would say, hey, that is not something I'm going to do. I don't believe in living that way. And I shared with them my reasoning from Scripture. And so they gave me the name Preacher. Now, folks... In Appalachian culture, that is not a compliment. So every time something would happen, a preacher, you know, and they would ridicule me. But guess what? When they had problems in the home, when they had personal struggles and problems, they didn't go to their drinking buddies. They would privately come to preacher, and we would talk it through, and I would try and give guidance. Did they love me? Nah. Did they respect me? I think so. I hope so. That's what God wants to see in leaders. He wants leaders who set a good example so that when your neighbors, when your co-workers think of you, they may not like a lot of your positions, but they'll respect you for your consistency for your life. God wants leaders. God wants Christians 
to do this. Why? Look at the last part of that seventh verse, and with this we close. Then they will not fall into disgrace. Listen, the world hates to see duplicity on the part of Christians. Whether you're a leader or not, if you name the name of Christ, they don't want to see duplicity. They want to see consistency. And that's how we better bring the gospel to those around us. When people can see a consistent life, again, not perfect, we'll all fail in one way or another, but in general, you're living a consistent life, that makes the words of the gospel something that people will want to hear. We don't want to fall into disgrace. We want to honor the name of Jesus Christ by the way that we live. And then secondly, we don't want to fall into the devil's trap. Now, this means to be ensnared by Satan. Scripture tells us that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. God wants us to be people who avoid those pitfalls, those snares, those traps by leading a consistent life. And that's true for us as all believers, but it's particularly true for leaders. Some churches that I know actually go and interview neighbors when they're considering someone for church leadership. How's your neighbor? What's their life like? They take that outside reputation seriously. We should too. Satan would love to ensnare us, particularly the leaders. So maintaining that consistency is vital. Why? Because it helps as we give an answer for our hope. I'm going to close with this passage. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. Now look at this. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Powerful verse. God wants us to lead lives above reproach so that, first of all, people seeing our lives will want to ask that question. Hey, what makes you tick? We'll be able to give it to them in gentleness and respect. And even when they speak against us being holy rollers, they'll be ashamed of their slander because of the consistency of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder that it is to us all that we need to lead godly lives. For the leaders of our church, I pray that each leader, myself included, will live out these characteristics, these traits, in a way that honors Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.